0: All right, welcome to the Andrew Scott Show. My guest today is Tarek Fancy. He is the former chief innovations officer at the world's largest asset management company, BlackRock. He's the founder of Rumi, which is a nonprofit app to bring free learning to the world and help individuals bridge the educational gap between school and the real world. You may have seen him before on CNBC, where he's regularly featured. So we had a great conversation about what greenwashing is and why Tarek has been blowing the whistle recently on Wall Street for doing it, along with what can actually be done about it. Tarek is a very intelligent guy. He's got a solid perspective on life, and he's got a good heart. I really learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Here we go. All right, Tarek, we are now live. Nice to have you here, man.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I would love to kind of start with where you enter the scene on this whole greenwashing thing because in kind of defining what that means, because that's how I originally heard of you and um, would love to give some people context on really, uh, you know, about yourself and how it relates to that.
1: Got it. Well, let me me spend five seconds on my background because it'll kind of make sense. I um, spent a bunch of time as a banker and then as an investor doing the whole sort of Wall Street thing, it was not really my passion, but I kind of got hoovered into it after college. 20 years ago, and then in 2013 I left and created Roomie, which I now run. It's a nonprofit education organization. We're making like the Wikipedia of free learning at uh, roomie.org. And then uh, I joined BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager. It's last largest asset manager in history, nine trillion dollars under uh, management. And the idea was that in theory, I was kind of merging a little bit of what I'd done on both sides. So I was using the Wall Street, the financial mechanics, and then the nonprofit experience and building social impact to say, hey, can we do both at the same time, right? Like sustainable investing, impact investing, you make a good investment return, it's good for business and it's also good for the world.
0: Awesome, man. Um, so in real quick, uh, before we get into BlackRock and Greenwashing, can you talk a little bit about Rumi?
1: Yeah, so Rumi, um, we basically try to make learning new job skills, life skills, career skills, as fun and easy as possible. So, you know, we go to Rumi.org, we, it's all mobile first, it's all five minute, like five or six minute micro courses, right? Um, and we use a micro learning approach because it helps people learn better. It actually has better learning retention and it's just super engaging, right? So we've found that um, since the pandemic, we grew it from zero to over a hundred thousand users. We're growing the courses on it that are created through crowdsourcing and it's really just an easy and safe way for people to actually, interestingly, get a dopamine rush from learning a new skill. So I know you've met, we're talking about Facebook and the pre thing, but um, it's kind of competitive with social media because like nearly 90% of youth who are using it say that it replaces social media time because, you know, you could either take a six minute hit it on Instagram or you could, you know, build a new skill.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, you see like, you know, book summaries and things that are informational on YouTube, but I know that's not most of the content that's getting
1: <laughs> consumed
0: on those platforms. So it's cool that you're, Leveraging the same kind of uh, you know approach with with something that's a lot more productive.
1: That's the goal, right? I mean, again, a dopamine rush. Like, because every you know, you use like social media when you're bored, right? People are waiting for yeah. the bus. They're in the bathroom, probably. You know, whatever it is, you you, you know, you pull it out for five minutes, and uh, you know, it doesn't. Six minutes. Instagram session: The average person uses social media for over two and a half hours per day. That was before the pandemic. they have definitely gone up. Adds <laughs> up, right? They're taking five minutes here and there. You get a dopamine rush. They sell you some ads. It's great for Zuckerberg. It's not so great for our mental health. And you know, we're hoping to be part of the solution to that.
0: Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. I want to come back to that, but uh, and hear about how Rumi started. But can you talk to me about your experience in? in Black, or at BlackRock and kind of why you left?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, what they're trying to do is in many ways seem really well intended. And anyway, my message is not specific to BlackRock, it's just the entire industry. It's, you know, the, the, um, the idea is that you could basically look at how they, so let's take a step back. W- what does Wall Street actually do, right? It's, it's easy to lose sight of that um, uh, because it kind of acts invisibly in all corners of the economy. And the best way to think about it is, you know, Wall Street and the capital allocation process they govern connects the capital and the savings of people who save money, right? Like us in our bank account and our checking account, like the bank's actually doing something with that, or a pension fund that invests on our behalf for our long term retirement. That's the money of savers, right? That that belongs to everybody in society. Wall Street, effectively, the most important thing they do is they connect that money to uses, uses of capital. Right, so it's a share, it's a company that wants to sell shares to the public. Right, Tesla's trying to expand, they, they'll sell shares, or they'll sell, sell bonds, and uh, it, it, it's a really, really important process because the better that capital is allocated in our society, the more we end up with companies that you know can grow and create you know things that new medical things, vaccines, right? Um, they create jobs, so it's really important. And the fundamental thing about ESG is really the idea is that like Wall Street saying, hey, as we do capital allocation, uh, we are going to also be the solution to society's problems in environmental and social areas, because we have this thing called ESG, which is an acronym for environmental and social and sort of corporate governance. And we're going to start doing ESG stuff over what we're already doing. And uh, and it's going to mean that we can like both get great returns, and which is what they're really meant to be doing, right? Is is getting a return on people's money, and we can like solve climate change and inequality and a whole bunch of other things. That's kind of generally the premise of sustainable investing or impact investing or ESG. Okay. Okay. So
0: this is what is being touted on Wall Street. But I can I guess where I'm wondering is where is the disconnect between. How it's being promoted and the reality of the impact that it's having?
1: I mean, the biggest issue is that there's no impact. It's having no impact. (laughs) So it's like the win-win is like a win for Wall Street. I'm not quite sure it's a win for society, which unfortunately is a recurring trend of allowing Wall Street to attempt to regulate itself, right? Is that it sort of ends up in a place where it makes a lot of money and no one else does. Um, but, you know, the idea is that they're moving, you know, that that um, either they're saying, listen, we're doing a bunch of stuff already, right? And now we're going to think about ESG when, they, when we do it, right? Anything we're doing normally. That idea is meant to get you to believe that, hey, listen, they're allocating capital, you know, based on, um, you know, a set of things that are going to lead to more money for good businesses that fight climate change and that pay people a good working wage and everything else. It'll transform capitalism. I can tell you from being in the middle of the machine as a former investor, like it doesn't make any sense. Ultimately, the way Wall Street actually works is that they chase the most profit and yield, and that's the only thing they care about. And it's not because they're bad people; it's because that's how the system is designed to work. Right? They have legal obligations, right? What's called fiduciary duty. It's if you're yeah. managing someone else's money, you have to actually uh, do it based on a set of um, key criteria that are generally speaking, always about dollar values and not social values, right? Like you don't care if it's good for the world in 30 years, what you care about is the return on that investment, which may be one year or six months or whatever. Uh, and And you care about that because you're legally required to. That's that's you know otherwise you wouldn't give other people your money, right? It's That's kind of how capitalism works. You need to have that comfort that you give the capital someone they're doing what's in your best interest. And that has to be dollar value, right? It can't be values because everybody has different values, right? That gets into mm-hmm. politics. So they're doing so they're saying they're doing a bunch of that, but in reality, like Wall Street is doing kind of what they've always done because they're structured to do that. And I think the tragedy isn't that they're doing bad things. It's that they're saying that things that they can't possibly do. And in doing so, they're delaying government action, right? Because they're saying, oh, don't worry, you know, we'll do all the right things. There's something called stakeholder capitalism. There's this idea that's starting to grow that the business roundtable, which is like the CEOs of the biggest companies in the U.S., uh, got on and they basically, you know, they said, oh, we care about all stakeholders because legally a company, you know, most companies are registered in Delaware, right? Because it's very shareholder friendly Mm -hmm. in terms of its legal system. And so- you have a situation where they're legally required to focus on profits, right? I mean, again, that's that's how the system works. But then they're kind of going out there from a marketing and PR perspective and saying, oh, no, but you know, we care about all stakeholders and not just shareholders. We care about communities and this and that. And to me, that's just a response to society basically saying we need better outcomes on the environment, right? We need better outcomes on societal issues. And what ought to happen is the government comes in and does their job. It's kind of like a sport. Imagine if you're playing a sport and, you know, it's competitive and players are playing dirty. At some point, you need a referee. Right. And Wall Street, the last thing that they want ever is taxes and regulation, even if it's in the long term public interest, whether it's a carbon tax, whether it's regulation on any of their activities. They're they're generally going to view that as um, as undesirable. And so they'll. So there's a heavy pushback. So part of it is them saying, oh, we're going to do all the stuff for all stakeholders, which really, I think, is vacuous when you actually look at what, you know, having looked at the middle of the machine, it made no sense. Um, It was just optics and marketing. So that's kind of delaying government action. Uh, And then at the same time, on the other hand, there's a growing social angst where people are saying, hey, you know what, like, You know nothing's getting done right and why isn't the government doing anything why isn't anyone doing anything on climate change every year or whatever we you know we hear more and more about it and then like nothing actually happens and um on that what they've done is they've started selling funds that they um claim have impact right they'll say oh you know well you especially if you're younger and you're a millennial and you're particularly motivated by social issues they'll basically take an existing fund they'll make a few tiny changes that don't really do very much at all and then they'll you know, they'll, they'll paint it green, right? And then they'll sell it to you. And there's a huge impetus to do it in the industry today because you basically can generate a lot more in fees, right? Because they know basically that if you have like, it's like if you go to the grocery store, you have like two apples and they look the exact same and they're every way the same. And then one of them has an organic sticker on it. Like people are going to take that one, right? They're going to pay more for it. Um, and so it's a question of consumer behavior. They kind of are selling a lot of the things that are very, very similar or very unchanged, but they, you know, they can sell for more if it's got a green thing on it. And in the end, if you look at how the financial mechanics work underneath, it creates no impact at all. It's just moving money around. It's all optics and, but it allows them to charge fees.
0: Yeah, it's, it seems very strange. And there's this weird um, incentive structure too, where like you said, people are incentivized to do that. You're managing somebody's money. You have to get the best return for them. And sometimes that mean, that might mean cutting corners that um right. shouldn't be cut. And uh, it. it <laughs> I love that you use the sports analogy. It makes me think like, you know, I grew up playing hockey. So what if I was playing hockey and part of the rules were that you couldn't hit anybody, but the other team was hitting <laughs> your team. It's like, you're not going to last very long. Like, th- it's a hard thing to overcome. Um, the, like, the incentive structure just isn't there. It makes me think of, uh, I looked into uh, Rex. Uh, the re- renewable energy credits. Um, are you familiar with this? Somewhat? Yeah. And they were talking about how like you can do these green things, it kind of similar phenomenon, um, and, and generate these wrecks. But in reality, none of the money to generate a wreck was going into the addition of new solar panels, new, you know, nuclear plant, whatever. It was just, um, somehow, like you said, moving the money around and creating this illusion that you're really doing a good thing, but it it doesn't <laughs> really do anything to your point. Um, and what do you think the effect of that is? Because I know you've talked about the placebo effect before of, <laughs> of telling people they're doing something right. And, and really, they're not making much of a difference.
1: You know, I, I think it's actually extremely dangerous. It's funny, I actually left um, BlackRock in the industry at the like late 2019. And I turned my focus back to Rumi, which I'd founded anyway before going to BlackRock and, you know, was actually really well-timed because in the pandemic people really needed, you know, remote or digital learning solutions. And so, um, so I'd left back then, but I didn't say anything about it publicly because I'd come to the conclusion that most of it was kind of hopeful marketing and optics. And I thought, well, you know, this this is not how capitalism is going to get reformed, right? It you know it it was just kind of like smoke and mirrors, and I said that as a trained investor going in and looking at all what they're saying, and I was like, it was a bit worrying, right? You know, I looked at it and I said, this doesn't make any sense, so I left. Um, and at that point, I analogized it to someone. They were like, well, is it harmful or not? And I said, I said it's kind of like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient, right? Like if you have a cancer patient, the cancer slowly spreading. And you know, someone shows up and says, I have wheatgrass, you know, you know these magical stories people have around like health foods and nutrition. So wheat, look at this wheatgrass and they marketed it well and so on. They said, maybe it can help the cancer. You know, you or I might, we're thinking I'm in a tough situation. Like, let me buy this wheatgrass. It seems like a good option. And obviously it's not doing anything because there's no, re- you know, these products don't do anything to address climate change or inequality. Like they, if you look at the last few years, really ESG and all the sustainable stuff that Wall Street's doing, It increases every year exactly alongside like carbon emissions, inequality, like all the things it's meant to address because there's really no link between any of it. Right. So so I kind of looked and I was like, yeah, it's like wheatgrass to a cancer patient. And then uh, I decided to go public earlier this year because over the last year and a half, I started paying attention and realizing, no, this is worse. It's actually misleading the public into believing that our solution lies in a set of things that don't do anything beyond produce you know, additional fees for these financial firms. And I started liking it, I said like someone, I said, listen, I'm now realizing that the wheatgrass we're giving the cancer patient is convincing the camera the the, the patient to delay chemotherapy. Right. And It's not like we don't know what to do to address inequality or climate change. We've known forever, like there's economists have won the Nobel Prize years ago for saying that, you know, we need aggressive climate legislation, we need a carbon tax. If you want to fight inequality, you know, you have to actually rein in corporate power. You have to manage how they treat their employees so that they have bargaining power. Like there's a million things that have been suggested by all the best academics. The issue is we're not listening to them because the academics are generally saying, Let's go back to the hockey analogy. I'm from Toronto, so I I like I'm cool with all the hockey stuff. Um, It's it's like you're kind of saying like the the players are all on the ice. Right. And, um, you know, and they're realizing they can play dirty and it wins games and um, and they end up doing better out of it. Right. And the fans and the crowd eventually start saying, listen, like here are the solutions. But all of the solutions require updating the rules and getting the referees to enforce them. Right. None of the none of the solutions require like or ask for like good sportsmanship, because clearly that's not working on its own. Right. But business doesn't want regulation in any way, shape or form. They'll do anything to fight tax and regulation. And so ultimately what they're pushing to the public is an idea based on good sportsmanship. Right. They're saying stakeholder capitalism and look at all, you know, we're going to be net. We're going to be net zero carbon emitters by 2050 and a whole bunch of voluntary non-binding pledges that are largely marketing because the unfortunate issue is that to solve a lot of society's problems, there's no magic bullet where like everybody gets to, you know, save the climate environment and like make tons of money at the same time. Some of these are tough issues and they're going to cost money and take sacrifice. And in a situation like that, when you have an inconvenient set of truths, people are very susceptible to convenient fantasies, frankly, right, that sound really good, where it's like, oh, I'll buy this ETF, and then I'll, like, you know, put some savings in it, and they will like, save the world, and make lots of money, and, you know, but those don't exist, and the reality is that we just need serious government-led policy reform to address these issues.
0: Yeah, you had a, a great uh, quote on Twitter that I want to read. Uh, you said, sustain a babble has hit epic proportions, which I, I think that's just a <laughs> fantastic word there. Um, and yet little to none of it has any has vaguely any measurable real world social impact. Um, and, you know, as you explain, there's evidence that it's a deadly distraction, and it's delaying overdue government-led systemic reforms. Um, and I, I think that's well said and speaks to, you know, what you just mentioned there, like, as much as you know, free markets are great, and they solve a lot of problems. They don't solve all the problems, and you can't just have free reign. Like a hockey game without refs would be chaos.
1: <laughs> it would make no sense. By the way, the, the other thing is that like there is no such a thing as a free market. Like anytime you ever hear mm-hmm. anyone saying the free market will solve a problem that needs to be solved, honestly, I would tell you all you need. Like what I hear when I hear that is that this person enjoys the status quo and they don't want status quo to change because every time they say it it doesn't make any sense, there is no free market. You know what I mean? Like every market has rules. It's like every sport has rules. You can't play a sport without rules. It's a competition, right? Every market, even today has rules. There's rules around property taxes, there's rules around pollution. Like you play fines, when, how there's rules around, you know, what you could pay people, right? You know, how you treat them. There's all kinds of regulations, right? And every single, you know, like how long do you get patent protection, private property, all of these things exist. And you'll have a bunch of people and, I'll be openly disparaging about when they're like the free market will solve this. It's complete bullshit. It's like, there is no free market. There's a set of rules and they obviously think that those set of rules are very good for them. Right. So they'll say, Oh, the free market, which is just like kick the can down the road. And that's, what's the, the the most annoying thing about sort of what the financial service industry is doing on all this stuff is that it comes directly at the expense of the youngest people in society, including their own employees right? So like, if you're at one of these big finance firms, and your CEO is like 65 or 70, they gain the most from the status quo. And they're least at risk of the consequences of continued inaction. Like they're going to go out there and they're going to say, I want to fight for inequality, whether it's racial or wealth or income inequality, I want to fight climate change. But like, the reality is like, they're 70 years old, like net zero pledge, you know, in 2050 is going to be when they're 100. Right? Like, (laughs) they're kind of the game from the system. And they don't bear the consequences of inaction, but their employees 25 is in the exact opposite situation, right? They, they, they're the b- bottom of the totem pole. And then all of the, you know, these longer term issues where we're kicking the can down the road to satisfy a system that is extraordinarily short-term oriented. Um, you know, the, the, you know, it'll be really their own younger employees who end up picking up the pieces at the end when, you know, prevention's prevention beats cure, right. i mean, in terms of cost, and we're not preventing anything right now
0: we're we're pretty good at that. Yeah. <laughs> we're pretty good at focusing on cures instead of preventions. Yeah. Um and, and yeah, more of the ways than one, but yeah, it's um it's unfortunate. There's a a famous proverb or something about, you know, planting a tree that you'll never be in the shade of. Like it's it's um it's a noble thing to do, but you know, kind of like we talked about, there's just no incentive structure for that to be done right now. Everything is very short-term oriented. And I think until that fundamentally changes, um, we're going to get more variations of the same and more, you know, distractions and fireworks, such as this greenwashing that kind of distract from the root of the problem, it seems. Like, but, what, what do you see as the solution to this?
1: I think that, I mean, honestly, I think it's young people in particular need to grab this mantle because they're the ones that are getting screwed the most. If you have a very short-term-oriented system, it's going to squeeze out as much value as it can today and kick the consequences down to other people because frankly, you know, they just care about the next quarter, right? Um, I mean, think of it this way: the average CEO, the, the amount of time they stay as a CEO is the shortest it's been in decades. It's now five years. It used, you know, there was mm-hmm. there's 10 or 15 years. They're only in that role for 10 for five years. But this average CEO also gets paid higher than they've ever get, got paid in any point in history in the past. So the average CEO gets 320 times the, um, the average industry worker for that industry. So they're there for a short, short time, short than they've been for decades and they get paid way more than they've gotten paid in decades. Right? So you have an extremely short term mindset because no matter what they say, I mean, I'm sure they want to be good people at the end of the day. I'm not saying they don't, but like when it starts costing money, their incentives their own stock and their pay and everything are just very very like focused next few years so you have a situation where like all of the expensive changes that we need made to like actually you know spend 10 or 20 or 30 years rebuilding an energy system or building a sustainable or inclusive economy those are don't register on their timeline right and so the only one to me who can actually do that is the government right the government is there playing the role of referee right mm-hmm. um you know, to preserve the long-term public interest, right? Like I'm not trusting a company to put a baby seat on the shelf that I would buy, you know, based on their promises that like, they think it's cool. Like certain things are regulated. We know that that's how we know we're not getting served poison at the supermarket or, you know, that's how we can trust that the rivers aren't getting people just dumping pollution in right. Those, you know, the government exists to preserve the long-term public interest and it has a legitimacy to do it because, you know, much as we may hate, Our politicians, we do get a chance to choose them, sort of every you know four years or five years, and so you know uh, I think that you know one thing for me that I think was really interesting about COVID nineteen was that you saw a systemic threat where people said we have to flatten the curve, right? It was an infections curve, and so people didn't leave it to the free market or like some system where you can just kind of you know just let's leave it and see what happens. Suddenly, you had a whole bunch of baby boomer, like in particular, leaders all being like, "Oh man, like we need to like use government action, close bars, close schools, you know, make masks mandatory indoors, you know, restrict travel." All of these things were done on varying levels, but in you know across the country, and it ha- it had to be done; otherwise, probably millions of people would have died. But then, when you get to climate change, it's you know a, a systemic curve, which science says we need to flatten. It's the greenhouse gas emissions curve. Uh, mm-hmm. but because the incubation period, unlike COVID, which is a few weeks, climate change is a few decades, all of the same like leaders who are like, oh yeah, we need government action on COVID, you turn them on climate change and they're like, ah, we'll just leave it to the free market. Like we'll just like leave it and see what gets figured out. And and it makes no sense, right? Because there are lots of good policy suggestions where the government can, you know, effectively change the rules of the game to 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 facilitate a green transition. Um, but again, you know, that doesn't suit the interest of a lot of the current players, right? So they're going to push back, even if it's long-term disaster for society.
0: Yeah, no, it's unfortunate. And I don't know, it seems like until that changes, people are going to keep taking the path of least resistance, but what, what meaningful changes do you think governments can make, um, to, to kind of help with some of this?
1: I think for, so I, I would say, so let's think about. Cl- cl- I think climate change and inequality are the two biggest challenges. That I mean, look, companies can be great and do nice things on their own, but those are the two big ones that you need government to move the needle. So let's take climate change as an example. For COVID nineteen, the government did two things to get out of the crisis. With one hand, government flattened the curve by, like you know, closing a whole bunch of places and doing things that, you know, whenever it spiked up, you got the thing back under control. So they used, you know, serious um, approaches that weren't just like voluntary. They were like mandatory things where they forcibly close places. They apply penalties. You know, these are not sort of, again, this is not good sportsmanship, right? There's a referee out there enforcing it. So one hand they're holding down the curve with the other hand, while they were holding down the curve, they then went and invested heavily in vaccines, right? Cause they said, well, we need an escape plan. And so again, government, you know, they made, um, operation warp speed for what it's worth was, was, uh, was a success. Right. Um, this is Trump's thing uh, because it led to emergency rapid approval processes, right? So you could get a vaccine approved. They had direct uh, R&D funding to pharmaceutical companies to make sure that they're basically doing R&D on this as fast, you know, throwing all their resources it. They also did pre-orders from multiple companies. So the logic is if you're if you're one of these companies, you don't really want to you know, spend all the money to do all the research and then you get beaten by a couple of other players and then they sell the whole market. True. So government goes out there and says, listen, we'll guarantee you a set of pre-orders so that you have an incentive to, you know, all of, you have like eight horses basically all running, you know, the same race. And so if a few of them fail, we know we're going to get a working vaccine as fast as possible. So they're doing both these things with both hands. Basically policy experts are saying the exact same with respect to climate change, right? They're saying, You need a set of mandatory and systemic actions that are not just voluntary good sportsmanship. Like you have to be enforced by law that flatten the greenhouse gas emissions curve, right? So, carbon tax would be one of the biggest things. Uh, Vehicle emissions limits would be another, you know, energy efficiency standards for buildings. There's no question they're going to cost money, but that goes without saying. I mean, that is the Mm -hmm. that's why climate change is a crisis, you know, that it is going to cost something, right? So, but the faster we do it, the better. So, you know, hold down the curve in one hand. They haven't really enacted most of those things um, in any meaningful form. And then with the other hand, just like there was Operation Warp Speed defined in an escape plan, right? New vaccines, they could do the exact same thing to aggressively, you know, while holding down carbon emissions, start investing in, in low carbon solutions. And that could be anything from like building out electric vehicle infrastructure in the country, right? I mean, government's got a lead doing that. You know, that's the kind of thing that's part of an infrastructure bill. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's going to cost money, but government can lead and build that out and that'll make it easier for people to make that transition. There's, um, just a whole host of things that they can do that would speed things up, investing in carbon capture and storage, you know, other new renewable technology, battery technologies. There's a bunch of things they can do and it hasn't really been done in a meaningful form yet.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, obviously changing the entire energy infrastructure of, you know, the, the entire economy would be a, a a large fee it wouldn't happen instantly, but to your point like i can I can see how people are upset that more meaningful steps towards it hasn't been taken um and and has been kind of washed over with this the screenwashing thing. Mm-hmm. it's very interesting um it, it makes me wonder though there's um how do you have faith in like, so the the whole you mentioned COVID and the whole lockdown thing, I know that's gotten a lot of scrutiny for, you know, people claiming that we've had the biggest transfer of wealth um, to, you know, the, the 1% and that kind of thing. Right. Um, and people have been critical about, you know, the government cracking down for that reason. But obviously, like you need government, like to to facilitate things. How do you approach like balancing that and, and making sure that, you know, the refs on the ice aren't uh, skewing everything for, for one team? Um, like you don't want to be <laughs> totally nihilistic, right. But you have to, you have, you need government. Like we know this.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the challenge, right. At the end of the day, when you go back to government, then you talk about politics and then it all becomes kind of hopeless. <laughs> it feels a little bit hopeless. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like people, um, you know, I, I I was not a fan of, president trump but i already said i'm i'm from canada so it probably wouldn't be that much of a surprise that being said you know i'm very empathetic when i listen to the voters right because i think that you know i think that there's clearly grievances that they have that aren't being addressed by either party right and so there's this anti-establishment push and you saw in 2016 whether it was sanders or trump people were asking for something outside the norm um and so you know the challenge though with trump was that you know much as his uh the people support him. Many of them are are, are have like good motives. At, at the end of it, I'd imagine you know he himself wasn't particularly competent, shall we say? And so the challenge a little bit was that you couldn't really make the argument that government's the answer while like he's the government because it's kind of like like we're we're like walking somewhere far away and then we're like oh man we should drive a car and then the only person who has a license is wasted and you think to yourself like you know what I mean like you know this is the answer but not right now but yeah. i think now there's actually a you know a government in place that i think if they have the political wind on their back you know the important thing to recognize is they're the only ones who actually have the tools to do it right they're the only right. ones who are the referees um and there are systemic crises that you know markets can't solve on their own right i always say it's like a pandemic is one because you need border controls, you need fast action, you need new laws, you need massive spending and changes. Obviously only government can do that. You can't leave it to like random companies operating independently. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's things inside that people want to need that for climate change is another, I will say, you know, alien invasions. If there was an alien invasion tomorrow, you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't leave it to the CEO of BlackRock to like figure it out. You know what I mean? Like you, you, there's a, <laughs> a reason, right? And so, know i honestly think that climate change one of the most interesting ideas i'd seen was moving it to the department of defense and saying they should lead Mm. the fight against climate change because it would be understood more as a threat to american society over the long term even if it's slow moving and insidious and you know all that kind of stuff but but you know it helps people think about it in that way the challenge though is that as you get back to politics right people say okay well you know fine you know how do we get anything done you know, the challenge is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's political parties is one issue, wherever your political stripes are. I think the bigger issue is the amount of money in politics, right? It's quite difficult to change the status quo and make the tax system more fair, for example, when the people who gain the most from the current tax system have now been given the gift of being able to use that money to, like, protect it, right? The system is going to work exactly as expected expect it will. If you give everyone... Everyone who has all the money and is getting all the money can spend that money to protect it. They're obviously going to do it. And democracy is supposed to have safeguards so that it's really around, you know, the public interest and people voting individually and so on. And, you know, at some point, if you have that much money in politics, it is skewing the system and slowing down any kind of change.
0: Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's concerning, right? Like I heard you even talk about lobbies in, in the business world and in, in, in like relevance to greenwashing and stuff. And you have interests that are, you know, have financial means. And like right. anytime you have that, you know, interest on the side that you've got to, you know, pay some, you know, respect to, let's say, uh, it, it, it screws up, you know, the incentive that you have to do your job well. And we, right. we see this in both business and politics. And it's, it's something else that I think about a lot. Because um, it, it's just the same instrumental structure. It as a a young person, I um, I would love to see that change, but I, I don't I don't know what that looks like. I'm not I'm not smart enough to I'm only smart enough to ask the questions, Tarek. So
1: you know, honestly, asking the questions is the first step, right? Because I mean, at some point, the solution the solution only comes when you figure out that like what you're doing now isn't working, right? Or I put it this way: you know, if the if solution's chemotherapy for a lot of these things, it's going to be painful and sucks. That's why it's like a cancer, right? That's why you know, it's unfortunate that um, we have to deal with this. But you know, the earlier we figure out that what we're having now is wheatgrass and not chemotherapy, probably the better, right? So having that conversation is really important because it leads to it leads to a fresh way of thinking about it and hopefully solutions that move the lever sooner.
0: Yeah, 100%. There, there's a saying that, you know, you want to be you know, have this certain optimism that it's going to work out while simultaneously acknowledging the most ugly realities of your situation, like simultaneously and holding those two things together is is hard to do, especially, um, you know, when there's extra money involved on the side. But um, no, it's interesting. So kind of on that note, do you think that most of the people involved in steering the policy for related to sustainable investing and climate change and stuff Do you think they have good intentions or is it more of a, you know, a a conscious decision to choose self-interest over?
1: Um, It's a really good question. I would tell you honestly that I, I don't think most people who are working on it realize, I think, in the same way. One of the challenges I saw was there wasn't that many investors actually doing it. It's weird. It's an investment area, but then like you go in and there's not that many people have really hardcore investment experience, which which means it might be harder for them to see holes in the thesis. Like I liken it to like, imagine if you joined Facebook and they had an ethical programming division, right? And then you get in there and then you're the only one who's ever written any code before. Like it it would seem to be a little bit odd. And so that's one thing I noticed is that the industry had less investors, like hardcore investors than any other area of investing that I'd seen. And again, I had done like I done something called vulture investing, which is extremely aggressive, like like bankruptcy style. It just happened to be where I worked um, early in my career, and so you know, I don't think most people actually know it's it, that it's you know they think generally speaking that they're helping, but and there's a lot of young people doing it, and they're all in it for the right reasons, which is you know they have an understanding that you know these problems need to be fixed and they need they, they want to work on solving them. And, but I'm not sure if they if necessarily would know how all the pieces fit together, because what they're doing sometimes is like creating data to help measure if a company is actually responsible or not. That's great. But, you know, if all you're doing is creating data to understand that, that's not enough, right? That's like saying, I'm going to understand if the player is sportsmanlike or not. Okay, great. Yeah, but like we still need a referee to like penalize them. <laughs> with the and so I don't know that a lot of them would look at economic history and realize that In the 1980s there's a set of like ideologies that started to spread under the thatcher reagan you know Margaret thatcher and ronald reagan eras in the us and uk and these people call them neoliberalism or whatever but generally speaking it's these ideas of like the free market will solve all problems and Mm -hmm. you know it may have had some value created some economic growth for a period but it at some point it swings too far in a certain direction and you need significant changes and those haven't happened and the most fascinating example is the financial crisis, right? 2008 happens. Obviously, you know, there's no surprise it comes 10 years after uh, the, you know, the government deregulated a bunch of key things around the financial services industry, separating investment banks from commercial banks. 98, 10 years later, everything blows up. Um, and yet the reforms that came after it have not been nearly aggressive enough to really reduce that risk. In many ways, there's more risk in the financial system and in various areas. And so you know, it, it's one of these things where, like, it's, there's it, there's an idea set of ideologies that seem to always pervade that say the answer is, and then whatever it is in the fine print it's just going to be good sportsmanship. It's all they're trying to keep off the government t- and taxes and regulation. ESG is effectively that, right? It's a mechanism for social change to happen that happens without any government action or any rule changes it runs counter to what every single serious economist is saying, right? The guy who won the Nobel three years ago in economics was talking about carbon tax and so on. I don't know that people working in industry have really internalized yet, uh, that actually they're contributing to a placebo because not only does it not really have any real life impact, but, and this is the really worrying part, it seems to actively be distracting people from the things that do have impact. Uh, I would be willing to bet that most people haven't really thought about it in that way. Where I do, where I would lay a little bit of, I would say, I won't say blame, but but I'd have suspicion are the senior most people at these firms. There's no fucking way they don't know that this is bullshit. And I and I swear very intentionally in that because there's no way that they could not know that th- there's a system that's based on incentives that do not align in the current situation to the outcomes that they're out there on stage saying that they want. And to me, I look at it and I say, that seems really convenient because It doesn't, it's not gonna work for society and they should know that. But then I look at their incentives and I say, it does work for your incentives, right? Like it, you know, it certainly means shareholder value is gonna be higher in the next few years and you're making money off. You know, this outcome is gonna be bad for society but good for you personally. And there's an old saying on Wall Street that everyone talks their book, right? It's like the idea is like they go on TV and they're saying to buy the stock, it's probably because they already own it and they want you to push the Mm -hmm. value up or vice versa. And so, you know, their best ideas are going to be the ones that happen to like align with whatever they want you to do. So they make more money and this, you know, on some level for the senior, most folks, they need, they, you know, they, they know that this doesn't add up and they've seen enough years of history to know that uh, it not only doesn't add up, but it looks like they're talking their book. And I think that, you know, a lot of them more need to have integrity and come up and say, listen, we just went through a systemic crisis. that required significant government action to solve this one is significantly more dangerous even if it's lower moving and every single expert saying we need serious government action. Like we need to start talking about that sooner than later.
0: Yeah. It's based on what you're saying, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when I, I think about, um, I was telling you Cassandra Spencer, Facebook whistleblower was on a few weeks ago and she was saying, you know, about people that are like promoting, uh, like overly, progressive ideas that are kind of detrimental to the, the foundation of, you know, progress, progress in right. the first place. She was saying that like some, the people at the top, they're, they're the ones that know what's going on and that are being a little bit more malicious, a uh, well, little bit more malicious to put it lightly. And really the people that are underneath them, such as the people that are putting together the data that you were talking about, are really just the useful idiots that don't know any better, really. Um, yeah, it, that's that's probably a harsh term, useful idiots. But yeah. I, I, the premise is there.
1: <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I what would, I would just say, they're cogs in the machine, right? Yeah, there's there's they're they're cogs in the machine. It's not their own fault. I was a cog in the machine. You know, people. That's how you start. You know, you you start as a cog, and then you eventually work your way up, and you're operating the thing. But if you've been a cog and you've worked your way up through, you may not see the big picture yet. But the people who have twenty plus years of experience and they're operating the machine and they're seeing all the pieces they would presumably know, right? That like, this is not gonna produce the outcomes that people want. And I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking sometimes, right? Because, you know, everybody, you know, the, what was that old line, uh, Mark Twain, wanted It's like like like, um, it's impossible to convince a man out of believing something that his livelihood depends on not believing yes. or something along those lines. I might have got it wrong slightly, but you know, the idea is that like, they would rather believe this fantasy if it's even vaguely plausible because it suits their interests. But, you know, that's the challenge, right? At some point, it's like, okay, but like experts have been saying for a while, we need to do a bunch of things. Those things are getting delayed by this. You know, there there are more, I think more people in the business community need to stand up and and say that. Like, I'm not anti-business. I'm a former investment banker. I have an MBA. I am a capitalist. But I know capitalism, you know, looked different in the U.S. like 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Like in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there was a more inclusive economy. There was a stronger middle class there was, you know, it, it was an equal, as a more equal society, at least from an economic perspective, um, um, and you know, there was better environmental protection. Right, Richard Nixon founded the EPA and Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. You know, you, you had uh, capitalism was a version that actually seemed to kind of make sense for more of American society. The issue is in capitalism today; it's the rules that exist within the system that you know the leaders aren't being vocal enough need to be changed already, whether it's regulating tech companies that seem to have had the wild west for 10 years to, you know, exploit the fact that the average person doesn't know what their data is or what's being collected or what it's worth. You know, in every industry you see this slowness around necessary regulation to protect the public interest. And so right now Wall Street's got a bunch of ideas it's saying, oh look, stakeholder capitalism and ESG and all these things. And my answer would be, wait a second. Like I went inside, looked at the machine and my reaction was, there's nothing in this. It creates no impact. And by the way, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there was no term ESG, right? Like we didn't need that. And somehow side, you have better outcomes. There was no parallel financial system. You know what I mean? Like, of all, here's a new system of financial assets that charge you like close to 50% higher in fees to claiming to do something environmentally conscious, which they don't even do. And so you did not have any of those things, right? You just had a system that worked. For more people. And that I think is ultimately comes down to the rules we set in society. And I think those are laws and they need to be set by the, by the referees. And I think that's, I think the debate that needs to grow.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. I, um, you know it it stinks because most people aren't going to listen to you talk about this aren't going to listen to you know things that are too in the weeds as we were even talking about before the show because you know how does that affect my day-to-day life how does that affect you know whether i can pay my bills and do whatever like i don't i don't i can't i don't have time to worry about um you know these incentive structures that are just these abstract things i don't really comprehend and and therefore you know uh, but it's unfortunate, you know, there's a there's an old quote, and I don't remember who it's by, but it might have been Ben Franklin um, saying that, you know, the number one duty of a citizen is to to question the authority um, mm-hmm. that, that they're under. And like, not, you know, in a like, I'm going to find something wrong, but in a, you know, objective way, like we want to make sure that we're doing the best for everybody here. Like we're right. we're a team. <laughs> That's the but,
1: uh so you got to debate everything.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate, and that's one of the reasons I really like this um, medium of discussion. Is because you know you can get on here, you can have uh, a real conversation. You're not condensed down into a, a soundbite or a short video or whatever. Um, you can kind of put something on the table and and discuss it and talk about it and and try to come to solutions and and just explore it mutually together. Um, but it, unfortunately, that's not a lot of the discourse that's that's going on in society. It seems.
1: Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, like Twitter and certain things, I'm not like I'm use some of them and some of them not, but they don't lend themselves to nuanced discourse. Right. And exactly to your point, if like, you know, if if people don't have that attention span or the ability to think through the nuances of the issue, it's quite difficult to change them then. Right. Because you know, people understand if they're getting robbed, like someone comes and grabs something out of their house, but if it's being done in some subtle way where like the system is, you know, doing things that are legal, but effectively someone is siphoning off proceeds or, you know, doing something that we don't really want to your point, if it's abstract and hard to understand, then it's like really hard to get people to focus on it. Right. Like it becomes, it's slow moving, it's abstract, you know, but that's how inequality is risen so much. Right. Every year it gets worse. And, you it's incrementally worse, right? Slow moving, but it, it keeps getting worse. And at some point you're like, you know, the frog that's boiling and you suddenly realize like, <laughs> like a too long. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, so
0: Tyra, we talked a little bit about rooming in the beginning, um, I would love to hear, oh, to, to go back to it. I would love to hear uh, how you started with that venture. I know you got an interesting story behind that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I spent, um, this career doing finance, um, and uh investing and doing a bunch of things and, and um, you know I kind of it never really was what I really what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing, right I just kind of like it was never what I envisioned myself doing when I was in college. Um, and so I was in like my early ish 30s and this is like 2013 and um, uh, and around that time period, one of my close friends who I did my MBA with he, he was a good friend and then he became my roommate afterwards. He um, he and I both used to say, hey, we're going to do something good for the world at some point, And like, you know, something with a bit of social purpose or around some of our passion areas. We obviously graduated from B school and went back to finance because it just hoovers you up well and you get sort of, you know, scared about taking any other option that's different or risky or whatever. Um, and then uh, a few years after we graduated, he contracted stage four cancer uh, and stage four melanoma in particular was very difficult. And um, he and I were the exact same age, and we were, you know, really close and all. And it was just sometimes when you have a close friend who goes through an experience that you know is particularly meaningful or 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 good or bad or whatever, you can live it vicariously through them. And so I I kind of watched as he realized that um, his days were numbered because you know stage four melanoma is less a question of your odds, more a question, unfortunately, of time. That you know, it was less of like, oh, I want to do something good someday. And it was like a bit more of, well, you know, it's now or never. And so he actually, he was a, a blonde hair, blue eyed Dutch guy. And he went to Kenya and created an education um, organization. There. It was a passion of his around education. I'm also passionate about education. As it happens, my parents were born and raised in Kenya. My family had been there for generations and then immigrated. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I uh, was involved and, and, you know, watched him do it. And, You know, it kind of inspired me. And so Rumi came out because I had this idea around using technology to, you know, bring free learning to, you know, anyone in the world, whether they're in the corner of Detroit or in, you know, Afghanistan, who has never had a chance, right? Because, you know, there's so much potential of everything going digital, right? In the idea that like anyone can access it. But the data shows that a lot of the free learning isn't only, not only is it like not closing inequalities in education, it's actually increasing them because all the benefits are going to affluent communities that have like fast internet connections and devices and so on. So Rumi basically our for a number of years, we were just figuring out how to bring the free digital learning revolution to the offline world, right? So we were doing stuff in like refugee camps, we're doing stuff for girls education in Afghanistan, like mm. really remote parts of the world where you couldn't get anything. And it worked offline and it had a few other features. And then the last few years, as we got better and better, and we expanded in a bunch of countries, all through partner organizations, and it's all our, our stuff's all open and free. We're a five hundred and one C three nonprofit. Um, we then started to realize that there was a real opportunity to change how people learn. And what we noticed was that, um, which I feel like every school system noticed when the pandemic happened. But we realized that people learn differently on technology than they do, like in person. And so what we'd we'd seen was a lot of really crappy examples of education technology would be like a school saying, oh my God, the pandemic hit, like, okay, here's our textbook. Well, we're just gonna make it into a PDF and now you can have that PDF. And I would tell them, I was like, yeah, like, listen, you could give someone a PDF of a textbook on their mobile phone, but like, good luck competing with TikTok, right, on that, (laughs) right? Because the challenge is if you're in a classroom, well, here's the thing, if you're in a classroom, you know, and there's a 60 minute lecture, right, and then, it's boring and it's minute seven. you can't walk out right you're kind of I mean I mean theory you can jump out the window but like realistically some, <laughs> someone's gonna notice and there's social pressure and you know you're, you're kind of a captive audience. So the education space is always thinking about like oh we just need to make good quality learning and that that'll create like you know impact or whatever social impact And so what we started realizing is no no, it's quality times engagement because we're doing everything digital we're doing it around the world. We're noticing that as social media companies come in, they're particularly adept of all the companies at like hacking your brain, right? So that you, you know, you basically get a dopamine rush from like, you know, grabbing your phone and doing a six minute hit on Instagram. And so um, and so that's why we started switching it to micro learning because we looking at the most recent research, we're doing work ourselves. And we're saying like, listen, if in general, micro learning seems to be more efficient, which means that like if you or I do a certain amount of time, but if we do it through micro learning, we actually retain like 22% more of what we've been taught. So it's efficient. But the second thing is because it's micro blocks, you can make it fit into your day in any kind of moment, right? Like it's very easy and convenient because it's not like sit and watch this one hour thing on your phone. Because at that point, you know, you end up again, like those are, those I think education players have found very, very difficult to compete with during the pandemic because, you know, if you're up against social media and it's hacked your brain and you want that dopamine rush, right then you're going to go back to that so what's really cool about what we've done since we started we we, we launched to switch to micro learning like right as the pandemic kind of hit we pulled it a bit earlier we launched it and um it's grown am- amazingly since then it went from like zero to hundred thousand learners all organically very very quickly wow. um we had and here's the cool thing the courses on the platform are all created by volunteer educators right instructional designers so on. So we vet them when they enter our community and then we vet the content before it goes up. So it's like Wikipedia, but, you know, we do like 5% of the work just to make sure there's quality there. But otherwise, you know, you have really passionate volunteers around the world who were sitting at home. It's a pandemic. And they thought, hey, I can like have a way to contribute my skills and expertise all digitally that reaches other people who are also you know stuck out of a program whatever. And so, yeah, I've, I've scaled it. I mean, the most interesting data point I've seen, and this ties back to the Facebook and social media stuff, was that um, was that 88 percent of, of youth saying that it actually competes with social media time because. Really? It's, yeah. Well, here's the cool thing. The research shows you get a dopamine rush from like loading Instagram and like, you know, sort of whatever sure. refreshing it. You also get a dopamine rush from building a new skill or concept. If you learn something discreet, mm-hmm. you you get a dopamine hit. The thing is, you have to you have to like start and finish it. So it can't be like I open the textbook to page 13 and I read to page 16 and I close it. And it's like it's like the middle movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where like it doesn't really start, it doesn't really end. And you're just kind of I always think it's like the least satisfying one. It's kind of like that. You, you need that. It has to be enclosed. Right. You start it. You do a couple of quizzes. You finish it. and You're like, I've learned X. And if you do that, you get a dopamine rush. And so we're finding that um, that kids get a dopamine rush, or young youth can you have dopamine rush by doing something that's good for their long-term mental health. And they're actually starting to switch out of social media because if you literally just take the roomy, you know, you bookmark the thing and throw it on your, next to your social media app, people actually then they start, whenever they have that boredom and they like pull it out and their brain's on like autopilot and they're like, boop, about to load um, whatever whatever um, social media property. They actually look and they'll spell, oh, let me try this instead because I have five minutes. And then they prick a micro course, they get a dopamine hit, over months and months of time that actually kind of builds you up instead of breaking you down. Um, So those yeah. so we're really excited about it because it seems like it's a model that is really built for the modern learner.
0: Yeah, it's funny as you were talking about, you know, the attention span and that kind of thing and and people getting lost in textbooks, I was thinking about how um, I think Ted talk originally started the length of their like doing the talks. Um, as I think it was 22 minutes or whatever because that's what the human uh, attention span was optimized for. That must be so outdated. Like, <laughs> totally. you know, t- one decade of Instagram and Facebook and that is just out the window.
1: No, it shot. really is. It's funny because I almost wonder, I'm like, how low will it go then, right? We saw like Vine, yeah. about six seconds, right? And now it's kind of swinging back. But it, it definitely, um, it seems like people really use their mobile phones, you know, whenever they get bored, right? They're just trained to pull them out. Sometimes it's like you're, you know, you're waiting for the bus. Someone's at the laundromat. Again, someone's in the bathroom. Whatever, um, and but sometimes it, you know, people just they don't know, and they have a few minutes. They grab it and um, they hack a lot of time out of our days like that, right? Because you don't realize it. Like you know, it keeps coming and it happens so many times. It adds up into this big amount, and they, all they're doing is cranking that optimization engine because. You know, to our earlier conversation, they're pro- they're 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 trying to focus on profit. That's not because they're necessarily bad human beings. That's because that's obviously how the system works, and um, and you know they'll do it if it means that they could sell you an ex- extremist content or sell me like something controversial, whatever it is that they know I'll click on. Clearly, may not be good for either of us in any way, shape, or form. But whatever it is, it's controversy. It sells. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna feed it up. So they can keep us on there and sell more ads because they're optimizing for, you know, quarterly earnings.
0: Yeah, no, 100 um, percent. But it, it's great that you are deploying a lot of the same philosophy to something that's a lot more productive. That, that's incredible. So um, what do you see for the future of room You're at 100,000 users now. Where, where are you guys going from here?
1: Uh, it's, it's, so I don't know exactly. I can't remember the exact number. It's like probably 150 plus. It's, it's accelerating and it's all organic. And um, I think that you know, if you look at the speed with which we're doing it, we had um, so we've had 3,500 people in the volunteer community who have created content, and that sort of is growing. Um, and uh, we had we launched like a year ago. We had nothing, then we created 50 micro courses and launched it. Uh, now we crossed a thousand uh, like a week or two oh, wow. ago, and we're now creating close to 50 a week because that whole engine is growing. And so we even work in some cases with, you know, companies want to do volunteer work and they have employees that are really, you know, they're like, hey, I want to do something that has impact and they're socially distanced or some people at home. So we'll just work with them and they'll create content that's on job skill stuff. Because our our focus areas of content are job life and career skills. And in a lot of ways, it's the kind of things that people wish they were taught in high school, but they usually weren't, right? Because, you know, the curriculum is so slow that you don't even like learn, people don't learn how, how like a mortgage works or credit card debt. And You think about it and you're like those are the most important you know financial decisions you'll make in your life but like they're not part of a usually not part of the high school degree. So hmm. you know, interesting. If you, Yeah, interesting. Yeah. We give those but we're super responsive on a bottoms up way, right? So if people like we'll build it to be as easy and engaging as possible and it the idea is just to remove the barriers, right? Because that's where we that's where we can drive the most impact for communities is like if you make learning fun and easy then people and, and, you know, we'll, we'll do more of it. Right. And they'll replace bad things in life with something that builds them.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. I think, you know, talking about the fact that it competes with social media time is, is huge. Cause I mean, what, what's competing with social media time, it's different social media platforms right now.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. They're all fighting it out for a growing, slightly growing pie and then just beating each other up to get your time.
0: Yeah. No, it's crazy. Um, how it, it just takes up so much time and, and I was listening to uh, Sebastian Younger on a podcast, uh, author of Tribe, and he had a new book out. I don't remember, but uh, talk about how you know it, he he has a flip phone and he just he just feels like it makes people so lonely. Although I don't know if I really agree with that analysis. I think it's kind of oversimplified. I think you know you can't deny that you know these social media tools are incredibly effective at helping us communicate. Where they're just uh, You know going back to the incentive structure they're just put together in a certain way to optimize profit and
1: not to optimize the user's communication experience right pretty much yeah i mean they're these are mathematically tuned sort of things right and you know what they're solving for um you know it's the way the corporation's built so yeah
0: well um tariq uh this is an excellent chat. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you one last question, uh, just kind of random out of the box. Um, do you have a favorite failure that you've learned from in your past that you took a, a really good lesson from?
1: Man, I have a, a lot of a lot of failures. I don't know if I've <laughs> any of them are my favorites, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can think of some of the early days in, with Rumi, there was a lot of swings and misses, right? In terms of... Uh, you know, I'd say, so one of the early failures that uh, I came across when I was doing Rumi was sort of this belief that um, uh, that the system, well, I, I kind of had this view that, like, um, you could innovate and create something really cool in the education space, and that everyone will just be like, this is better, so we should use it, right? Which, you know, in theory is how um, it works in and finance, right? It's very efficient. They're trying to get profit. If you show them to get, get more profit. Like they sign up the next day. Um, and I had that sort of mindset going into the social space and education space. And I thought, well, you know, it's like, it is going to be way better than they're going to do it. And then I realized that actually that's not how it works at all. Uh, it's very unresponsive. Like if, if I'm Apple and I'm selling you an iPhone, you're both the person using it and you're the person paying for it. So if you don't like it, you don't like using it, you're going to stop buying it. I have to be very responsive to you then, right? Because my funding comes from you. Education and other things are not like that, right? Because the person who, you know, who's the user is like a student, right? But they don't actually go and pay money. Like they can't like change schools, right? And so the system through which the funding comes means that you have a bunch of different incentives and all. To me, everything comes down to people's incentives. I'm a big fan of the show, The Wire, if anyone, um, if, if, if you've ever seen it, but um, you know, so one of the things I, I I found was that I just kind of assumed that everyone would get it. And I and and I found for a lot of social stuff, it's a lot of a longer um, thing where you have to really just build the relationships and do it slow. Like it just, it's just not as responsive. And so that's I mean, the, my, that failure at safe is a transferable lesson. It's, you know, probably to be really careful when you enter a new industry or a new space, because you know, they don't always operate the way you would think they would operate, right? That this makes sense. So therefore you should do it. You get a bunch of different personalities. You get a different set of incentives and it could take 10 years, even if you're proven that you're 10 times better, right? And anyway, that for me was the biggest learning mistake and massive failure because I wasted a lot of time in the first year or two barking up the wrong trees and then not realizing that there was like, it was never going to work and I had to go a different route.
0: Yeah. No, that, that's a that's a powerful lesson. Definitely gotta take a step back and look at things once in a while, right? Yeah, get, get uh, lost in the weeds looking at the looking at the tree, but only seeing the bark, like you said.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but um Derek, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on. Um, where can people go to connect with you?
1: Uh, you know what? Uh, well, Rumi is on social for first of all, people check out Rumi, Rumi.org, R U M I E dot org. It's all open and free. And so um, you know, tell people about it, try it out, hope it brings value to people. Uh, And, um, you know, we could follow Rumi as Rumi Learn on social media or I'm uh, So So Fancy, which is because my last name was Fancy and So Fancy was taken. So I am So So Fancy, which memorable, I guess, hopefully.
0: I like that extra. (laughs) It was good chatting with you.
1: Great talking to you also.